If you've got a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see one in the pew in front of you. We're going to cover a lot of text today. We just read an entire chapter from 5 and um, want you to just be able to look at that and see that as we're going through to see we're making none of this up. Um, Today we're going to be looking at the story of Noah and the flood. Now, um, some of you have heard this story before. Um, You know all about Noah and his arky, arky... um, and, and if you didn't laugh at that, if, if you're uh, new to church and you're like, what is everyone laughing about? Um, here's what I'll say. You actually have a leg up on us uh, in a lot of ways because um, what can begin to happen is when a story becomes so familiar, when you've heard it so many times, it becomes almost difficult to hear what it's really saying. And so as we dive in, I just want to pray and ask that God would help us hear what is for many of us a familiar story in a fresh way. So um, let's start by asking for God's help. Um, Father God, I thank you that you've not left us to wander and find our way to you, but that you have given us your word um, and that you speak to us through your word. And so, Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to um, illuminate the words of Scripture this morning as we look at what you've told us about Noah and the flood. Um, I pray that you would um, speak to each and every one of us right where we're at. Um, Would you divide the thoughts and intentions of our heart? Would you make more sense of our life because of this here? Would you help us to see ourselves in this story? Um, Would you help us to see in you what Noah saw in you that changed his life? Would you help us to be a people that are marked by your goodness and grace in such a way that the story might be told um, for many generations to follow? So we ask for your help. We ask you to um, help us to hear these things exactly as we need them, that we might know more of your love and mercy and grace this morning. In the beautiful name of Jesus, I ask. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 6, we've already heard chapter 5, the genealogy that we heard read, what that's really doing there is um, that's moving us from uh, Adam and his family, who we've spent several weeks with, Uh, the genealogy moves from Adam and his family to Noah and his family. Chapter 5 covers some 1,600 years of human history. Uh, That's more history than the entire rest of the Bible, uh, excuse me, of the Old Testament will cover. Um, So that's a lot of time covered in chapter 5. And the question as we get into chapter 6 is as we move from Adam's family to Noah's family is we've covered all of this time. Have things gotten better east of Eden? Have the humans got back on track? And that brings us to Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. We read this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives at any that they chose. Then the Lord God said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. All his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Um, So the short answer is no humanity's not back on track. That's the short answer from those verses there. Now, the long answer is there's actually a lot of debate about the verses that I just read there. One of the main debates centers around um, the Nephilim, like who are these guys? 
kind of the majority view uh, in the church ever since the Reformation has been that these are um, men from the godly line of Cain um, sleeping with uh, women from the ungodly line of Lamech. Um, and so kind of the idea here is uh, you've got some failed missionary dating where um, these good old boys see some hot girls that aren't inside of the faith and they go and do that. And um, I'll just tell you this, I find that very problematic both linguistically and theologically and just what I know of men and women in dating, um, that it's, I think, a little rich to put all the blame on them. Um, so that's probably the majority view in the church, um, but I think it's improbable for the reasons I've said linguistically, theologically, and so um, I prefer the view of the church fathers, and um, this is a much older view, that the sons of God are actually um, fallen angels um, that sleep with women. You didn't see that one on the flannel board for knowing the Ark, did you? Now, now look, I, I know that sounds weird. Like, you're like, you just solved one problem by making something a lot weirder. Here's what I'll say about this, and then I really do need to move on, because I promised Karen I wouldn't go long here. Um, uh, there's lots of weird stuff in the Bible. I, I don't know if you know this, but if you like actually read this thing, there's lots of weird stuff in here. And what's interesting is it's, it's all one big connected story. And when you pull on something that seems weird and seek to understand it more, it actually connects the dots and makes sense of some of the other stuff that seems weird at first. So here's what I'll say. If you have questions about the Nephilim, ask it in the Q&A. We love questions here. We want to invite those here. But it's not the main point of the sermon. As I promised the Lord and my wife, I'm going to keep moving. Um, because here's the thing, at the end of the day, whether you're like the majority of Christians and hold this view that it's these guys and these gals, or whether you hold kind of the fallen angel view with humanity, however you hold it, no one's arguing about the ultimate point, and that is that humanity is getting worse. The way that verse 5 says it is the wickedness of humanity was great on the earth. The point is this, um, we're often taught evolution in our world today. Um, this idea that humanity is getting better and better and progressing from generation to generation. We're making progress, progress, progress. And if we are just given enough time, we can fix what's gone wrong in the world. We will just progress, progress, progress to the point where everything is fixed. And, and, and the Bible looks at that assessment and says, you think way too highly of yourself. The fact that uh, we think that humanity is on this upward mobility of inevitable progress that might just fix the world, it has more in line with what the serpent was telling Adam and Eve in the garden, that you know how to run this thing, you're smarter than um, the Bible. God loves us, and so he doesn't want to be down on us, but he wants to be realistic with us. And he, what he's saying here through this genealogy is time is not your problem. 1,600 years. Human history advances 1,600 years. You would think you would see some ultimate progress. You would think that maybe they'd work their way back to Eden, and yet generations come and generations go, and the evil on the earth only gets worse. And here's why. Verse 5 tells us, every intention of their hearts were only evil all of the time. Um, theologians call this uh, the doctrine of total depravity. Um, now, the first time I heard that idea, I said, that's crazy. I haven't killed anybody. It could be a lot worse. Um, but the, total depravity isn't saying that the world is as bad as it can possibly be. What total depravity is saying is that our fundamental core, our heart, is broken. And the fundamental center of who we are, we are broken creatures. And so nothing then can work right. And so, sure, you might not have killed anybody, but you've wanted to, right? Um, okay, we're not feeling honest today. Okay, um, 
And, and, and seriously, though, it's, it's not just um, that, but it, what the, total depravity teaches that even where we want to do the right thing, like build a city, like love a family, like serve a community and fight for justice, we will inevitably go about that in ways that if left to ourselves, will simply make things worse. Just like Lamech in the text last week. He's like, you shouldn't have hit me. That was wrong. So he takes justice into his own hands and he kills the guy. By the way, I felt the need to say in the scripture reading, the Lamech at the end of that genealogy, a different dude. Apparently that was a common name back then, but not the same Lamech. So total depravity says our hearts are broken Every inclination is evil all the time. It doesn't mean we're always doing the worst thing, but it means even when we're trying to do the right thing apart from the grace of God, we will go about it in a way that leads to death. I tell you this all the time. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to you and I that leads to death. And so this is the condition of humanity. Time is not the issue. God allows 1,600 years of history to go by, and nothing fundamentally changes because humanity is fundamentally broken. Generations come and generations go, and God sees that evil is destroying more and more of his good world. And I don't want you to miss what comes next, because you might think that God is cruel uh, when we get to the flood if you miss out on verse 6. What verse 6 tells us is God sees the evil that's multiplying on the face of the earth. In verse 6 it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Have you ever looked out at the world and seen brokenness and evil? Not in you, because you're awesome. I'm talking about the other people. Um, Have you ever looked out at the world and seen evil and felt grieved? Have you ever looked at and seen the injustice that plagues this kind of post-fall, post-Genesis 3, like Mad Max wasteland of a world we live in? You ever look out there and um, feel just overcome with pain? Um, Some of you haven't been on social media lately. That's probably a good idea. Um, See, if you've ever looked out at the world and felt grieved by the state of things, what this text is saying is God has two. God, God has two. Um, See, here's what I want you to see. God is not some abstract concept. God is not some dispassionate observer sitting up in heaven with the clipboard, just keeping track of all the ways that we fail so that he can condemn us or call us out on it. What this is showing us is God is a personal God. He is a loving father who is grieved when his kids sin and when his kids are sinned against by others. And so God looks down at the world, and generation after generation, he sees marriage fights. He sees men and women blaming one another instead of serving and loving one another. And as a father, it grieves him to see his daughters and sons be treated that way. He looks out on the world, and he sees murder, and it grieves him when the blood of his people cry out for justice. God looks at the state of the world, and he is grieved by it. And so... This is what sets up the whole story. Noah and the flood is all about God's response to this reality. Humanity is broken and bringing great brokenness into the world. God is deeply grieved by this. And I say this to you um, because there are, uh, in the last hundred years or so, we began to find other flood stories from other cultures. Um, Which is funny because some people when they see that they go, see the Bible isn't true. 
To which my response is, if Babylon had a flood story, maybe that's because the whole world flooded and everyone's trying to make sense of it. Right? So, so we've got these flood stories, but what's interesting when you compare the Bible's flood story to the other flood stories of the ancient world is the motivation is totally different. In the Babylonian story, the gods are angry at the humans. They're like, ah, these humans, they're smelly. They're taking up the world. They're not, they are a lot more work than we thought they would be. And the Bible alone shows a God of, um, a personal God who feels the brokenness in and of himself. He sees his sons and daughters being treated cheaply and it grieves him to his heart. So the flood is not God having a bad day. He just loses his mind and kills everybody. The flood is not God being cranky. The flood is God as a loving father rising up to defend the people in the world that he loves most. And that's what we see he does. Um, Verse 7. So God is grieved by the evil in the world. In verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Um, See, God's going to respond to the sin problem in two ways in the story. The first way is justice. And um, I think this is where we can get a little embarrassed when we realize what this story is saying. Uh, When we realize, wait, Noah and the ark is not about the first zoo? Not directly. Um, When we realize that Noah and the ark uh, really comes about, the story begins with a flood... And God's saying, I'm going to flood the world. Uh, When we realize this is ultimately a story that begins with justice, I think this is where we can tend to get nervous. But here's what I will always contend with you when we talk about this. The justice of God can make us nervous, but I contend with you, we all long for this. I mean, Christian or not, your neighbors, your friends, we all long for this. We might just use different words for it, but I'm telling you, we all long for this. I mean, we just talked about um, grieving the evil that we see in the world around us, right? I want you to picture some evil that you have seen recently. Maybe it was something on the news. Maybe it was a phone call you got. Maybe it was something that happened to you. I want you to picture that right now. Um, What we've seen so far is that God grieves what has happened to you. So don't you let anyone tell you that God doesn't care about what happens to you. Um, What we see in the story is he grieves it. But when we get embarrassed about this stuff, um, let me ask you this. Picture that moment of evil in your mind. Can you imagine... If someone had the power to stop that evil, but looked at it and said, who am I to judge? We would call that person a monster, right? Yeah. That if someone can stop evil, but sits back and says, I'm not going to get involved. Who am I to judge? You know, everyone's messed up. Let everyone do their own thing. But this is the modern conception of God, uh, that He is a dispassionate observer up in heaven that he will not get involved to push back evil to restore goodness. And I'm telling you, it's when you have this vision of a fluffy God up in heaven that won't get involved in judgment to bring justice, this is when people begin to take justice into their own hands. They say, if God won't fight for me, I'll fight for myself. And you end up like Lamech, killing a bunch of people just for wounding you because humans are in flawed and imperfect, and we need God to execute perfect justice, not us. Sorry, I'm getting a bit off on that. The point is, um, what the flood story is showing us is God doesn't turn a blind eye to evil. He sees it, he is grieved by it, and he will deal with it. And I'm telling you, Christian or not, we all long for this. This is what's underneath our world right now, crying out for justice. 
And, and, and though we may have friends that want to know nothing of our God, they want the justice that our God will bring. Like this is the desire, is everyone wants to see a just world where evil gets pushed back and goodness gets restored. This is a longing of all of our hearts. Justice isn't the problem. The problem is we all want justice selectively. We want justice for everyone that hurts us, but not for us. We want mercy for us, right? Um, so we, we see evil being done in the world. We're like, you should punish them. But then when it comes to us, we're like, uh, I was just having a bad day. You should give me a mulligans on that. See, we're all hypocrites at some level. It's just freeing to admit it. We want justice for everybody else, but not for us. And I think this is why we get nervous when we talk about the justice of God. This is why when we come to this topic, we instinctively cry out, that's not fair. Because we know deep down, Christian or not, whether or not you will admit it, we know deep down that we all contribute to the brokenness of this world. And when we hear of a righteous and holy God who will stand up and fight for justice, on the one hand, it comforts us until we realize, wait, if he's going to make a just world, I'm part of the problem. And then we kind of hide behind some intellectual problems like that. That seems unfair. Fairness is not the problem. I tell you this all the time. God could uh, wipe out all the evil in the earth in an instant. You just wouldn't be around to see it. Fairness is not the issue. If fairness were the issue, the story would end there. God saw the evil on the earth. He killed all the humans doing the evil, and then everybody had a great day. But that is not what our God is like. He is committed to justice. And so he says, I'm going to put an end to this evil. But that is not his only response. And what we see in this story is a theme throughout the Bible that even in judgment, God remembers mercy and that his mercy triumphs over judgment. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its own kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. 
See, I know that's a lot. Here, here's what I want to say about these verses. Is, um, I think this is how we typically read this story. Those verses are more the familiar Noah verses, right? Um, and here's how I think we typically read this story. We typically go, um, man, everyone was sinning in Noah's day. But Noah, he was a righteous guy. And so God said, uh, I'm going to have to flood the world because they're all bad people. But Noah, you're good people. So uh, you're going to need a boat and uh, you're going to want to pack a snack because it's going to be a long time you're going to be on this boat. And, and basically that's the idea is uh, we look at this story and say there are good guys and bad guys. Um, and good guys get to go on the boat, bad guys get to swim. That's our conclusion oftentimes when we teach the story of Noah and the ark. And so the big idea we walk away with is be a good guy like Noah, not a bad guy. But is that what this text just said? Some of you know this is a setup. <laughs> well, uh, l- let me say this. I don't want to just answer it for you. I want you to see it in the text. If you have one takeaway from today, I want it to be this. Verse 9 comes after verse 8. Verse 9 comes after verse 8, which, by the way, happens to conveniently come after verse 5. And what did verse 5 already tell us? Everyone's wicked all of the time. Everyone's heart inclinations are fundamentally broken. This is the state of the world in Noah's day. You know who's included in the Hebrew word for everyone? Noah. This is great. We're talking now. We're reading the text together. So Noah is included in everyone. Noah was a regular old dude. He had good days where he'd um, show up to work and love his family. And um, it was kind of the portrait that you'd want to put on Facebook. Like, this was a good day today. And then he had days where he'd lose his mind and cuss people out on Facebook. Noah was a regular old dude. He had ups, he had downs. His life was just as marred with violence as everyone else in the world. Noah was a regular old dude. And then something incredible happens to him. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, uh, that word favor is the first occurrence of the Hebrew word for grace in the entire Bible. Uh, And we love that word grace here, don't we? Grace. Um, If you're new to church, it's a word that means undeserved love, undeserved favor, like you're, you're getting something that you don't deserve. And this grace is the pivot on which the whole story turns. Humanity's broken, humanity's evil, Noah's a messed up, mixed up kind of dude, just like everybody else. God decides the evil has had enough, he's going to rise up in judgment to restore the world. And it's looking real, real bad for the humans until verse 8, God decides to give grace to this man named Noah. Not because he's righteous, to some knucklehead named Noah. And it's only after verse 8. Remember, we said verse 9 comes after verse 8. So God gives Noah grace. And then after verse 8, you get verse 9, which reads, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And, and this is when he goes on to build the ark, the arky that we all sing a lot about. And, and, and here's the point. This is God's second response. His first response is justice, which is fair, which will restore the world. But God is not just a God of justice. He is a God of grace and mercy. And so his second response is grace. 
that in an evil day, he picks this guy named Noah and says, I'm going to give you grace. Now, was it because God looked down at the world and said, um, oh man, look at that guy. No, I mean, he's got three sons. Look at this guy. I could really, I could really rebuild this place with Noah's help. No. Noah was a regular dude, just along with everyone else. He is included in the thoughts and intentions of his evil being evil continually. God doesn't look down and say, Noah, I need you on my team, so I'm going to spare you because you're a good guy and everyone else is the bad guys. No, the whole point of grace is that it's undeserved. Noah was a regular old guy, sinning like everybody else. But God says, I'm going to love you, I'm going to speak to you, I'm going to walk with you through life and change you and make you a new kind of man from which I will rebuild on the other side of the flood. It's the pivot of the whole story. Now, did God have to do this? No, no. We, we've seen this in, someone was here for Genesis. We know God can create humans from the dirt of the ground. God could have wiped everybody out and rebuilt Eden 2.0 on the other side of the flood. But I want you to see this. Though he could have, he chooses not to. Because what we see in this story is what we see throughout the rest of the Bible is that God is a God of redemption and grace. And he loves to take broken sinners like you and me and to save us in spite of anything about us, and to make us a new kind of people so that when someone looks back on the story, he gets the credit, he gets the glory, not you and me. And, and I point this out because um, I imagine if you're anything like me, you have friends that think like, man, Christians are just the worst. Um, and, and my friends are polite enough to be like, Christians are the worst. Not, not you, but you know, all of them. Um, Christians are the worst because they think they're better than everybody else. And, and what I hope you're seeing in this story is uh, we don't. We, we don't think we're better than anybody else. And um, I, I guess if I'm being really honest, I think some Christians do think they're better than other people. And I think on some days I do think I'm better than other people. But in those moments, I'm acting inconsistently with the scriptures have told us. See, if you actually read the book, what you get is not this idea that God loves good guys and hates the bad guys, that good guys get on the boat and bad guys have to swim. If you read the book, what you see is we're all bad guys and God is a good God who extends mercy and grace and forgiveness to anyone who would humbly ask. That is the point of scripture. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way he saves Noah is the way he saves everyone. It's not because Noah's a good guy. It's because God's a good God. And he says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you favor. And, and that's the gospel. Not that we become a better person so that God will love us. Not that we clean ourselves up so that God will um, be ready to answer our prayers. Uh, the gospel is this, to come and meet a God who will love you in spite of anything in your story, in spite of any ounce of brokenness, instead of anything you've got going on in your life. He'll love you. If he loved Noah, he can love you. He'll love you in spite of all of it. He'll forgive you your sin. He'll save you from the judgment that's coming. And he will make you a new kind of person. And that's what God's grace does in the story of Noah. I, I want you to notice this because God not only gives Noah grace, that's the pivot on which the whole story turns, but God's grace has an impact on Noah. 
God's grace has an impact on Noah. Look at verse 22. Uh, we, we've seen God's response with grace, and, and then we get what Noah does. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now that is an incredible statement, especially when you realize everything that has been set up until this point in chapter 6. God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to flood the earth. Uh, everyone's going to die, Noah. This is what's going to happen. And so you're going to want to build a boat, uh, a big one, like large enough to encompass two of every animal. Um, that's a big boat, particularly for building it in the middle of the desert when it hasn't rained yet. So God comes to him with a big ask. Um, hey, I'm going to flood the earth, so you're going to want to build a big boat. And I love how practical God is. He says, um, you'll want to make it out of gopher wood, which is like a wood that floats. Um, what we're seeing here is Noah clearly knows nothing about boat building. So God didn't come to him going, there's a carpenter that knows how to put together a ship. He comes to a guy, and the first thing he tells him about the boat is, make sure to get wood that'll float. Noah has no idea what he's doing, so God is practical. He uh, says, get floating wood. And then he says, seal the cracks with pitch. Again, I'm not a handy guy, but I understand leaks on a boat and a flood would be a bad thing. But God's like, hey, Noah, I know you haven't done this before. Leaks, it'd be a real bad thing in the middle of a flood. So make sure to seal up the cracks with pitch. Um, and then he says, hey, you're going to want to make rooms. Otherwise, this will be a bad National Geographic video, and the lions will be happy. The lambs won't. And maybe that's what happened to unicorns. I don't know. Like, I had some people ask me, like, did the dinosaurs not make it on the boat? Maybe not. Maybe unicorns made it on, but... Uh, Noah forgot to build the wall between the lions and them. I don't, I don't know. But he says, build some rooms. Otherwise, you're going to have less animals when the thing's over than when you started. And then I, I love this. This is where every word of the Bible matters. It says, you're going to want a roof. <laughs> like, yeah, you're going to want a roof on your boat in the middle of a flood. This is a great idea. I just, I love what we're seeing here. God didn't pick this guy because he's some great engineer. God comes to Noah. He gives him grace. He says, I'm going to tell you what's coming. I'm going to help you prepare for it. I'm going to talk you through the details. I'm going to give you all of these things step by step. Noah clearly has no idea. And, and what I love about God is he doesn't, he doesn't just drop the ark out of heaven. Um, I think sometimes this is how we expect God to operate, that if he's going to save Noah by grace, he just, poof, drops the ark out of heaven and says, here's the ark, uh, go on in and have a good time. But that's not what God does. You've got to remember what we saw on page one of the Bible, that God made humans to partner with him. And so God picks Noah by a sheer act of grace, but in his grace he leaves room for Noah to respond to believe God, to build the ark, to take him at his word, because this is what God has always wanted from humans. He wants humans that will walk in relationship with him. This is what we see about Noah, that he walked with God, that we would listen to God, that we would obey the word of God. And again, I'm not saying that God expects perfection. Uh, we'll see this next week. Right after the flood, Noah gets like blackout drunk on the other side of the flood. Remember, Noah is an average, everyday, ordinary dude. But what we are seeing is God desires a relationship. He desires partnership. And though the humans are broken, because that's the only kind of humans out there, he comes to broken, flawed humans, extends them grace, and leads them by the hand, step by step, from one degree of glory to another. 
So he says, Noah, you're going to want to build a boat. And not just any boat. It's got to float. You're going to want rooms in it. And you're going to want to seal it. God gives him the instructions. Every ounce of this is grace, but I, I really want you to put yourself in Noah's shoes. Can you imagine how long it would take to build this thing? A long time. Um... Verse 3 actually gives us some indication that uh, I believe it took 120 years. Um, that would be maybe another uh, one of those debated things from the early verses that you can ask about in the Q&A, so I'll just leave that there. Um, but whether or not you hold that view of verse 3, that it's saying 120 years, and then I'm going to flood the world, um, or you just look at this, uh, you could say, Looking at the pages, it sounds like a long time, especially knowing, like, I don't know how far Tubal Cain's tools had come along yet, but I imagine they didn't have power tools yet. And so um, I want you to think about the time it would take to put a ship of this size together. Um, you can go ahead and Google Noah's Ark, because like, I'm like, I don't know what a cubit is. If you Google Noah's Ark, you can see it compared to famous ships today. It's like almost as big as the Titanic. And if you think about how long would it take to build something like that? Again, this is where I would just submit verse 320 years. That's a great answer. But obviously it took a long time. This didn't happen overnight. Now, um, do you think it cost anything to build this boat? Yeah, that's a lot of lumber. We're building a fence in our front yard right now. I'm like, how much does lumber cost? This is crazy. Can't imagine what it would cost to build the ark to cut down all of these trees, and who knew, knows if there was a supply chain shortage of gopher wood at the time? So this must have been costly to Noah. This must have taken time. How much do you think it would cost to stock it with food for all of this? It's a lot of food. That's a lot of trips to Safeway. And, and then. Um, Here's, the, here's something I've really been thinking about this week. Do you think anyone mocked Noah? Oh, yeah. Wow, that's the chattiest y'all have been today. Yeah. Um, if you want to look at it this week, First uh, Peter chapter 3, what's so interesting is First Peter chapter 3 is written to Christians by a disciple of Jesus. And when he's talking about being persecuted for your faith, he immediately goes into the story of Noah and the flood. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and I think Peter spent a lot of time thinking about this story because in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, what he says is that Noah was a preacher of righteousness in his day. So what we know from the New Testament is that Noah not only faithfully built the ark over decades of time. I want you to think about that. What we've seen in Genesis is it's not yet rained upon the earth yet. So Noah's out there building a boat, like a big one, in the middle of the desert. You think anybody mocked this guy? Like, what are you doing over there, dum-dum? What's, what's up? That's a weird-looking house. And what the New Testament tells us additionally is he not only faithfully built his boat, but he loved his neighbors enough to preach righteousness, to say, hey, guys, God sees what's going on down here. He's going to rise up and deal with it, but he's gracious. If you just come, if you, just, if you would just believe, if you would just repent of your sin and trust in him, he'll let you on the boat. He'll free you from the judgment that's coming. Noah was a man who faithfully built his boat and... Um, like, I've kind of thought about, like, would Noah have been received as the guy, like, on the street corner with the Turner Burns sign? Um, I don't know, because I don't really like the, um, the vibe of the Turner Burn. I think that sounds a little different than Jesus. It says, uh, repent, rethink your life in light of the gospel. But I'm telling you, 
I don't preach turn or burn on street corners, but I've been called a fool for saying everything I've said so far. That we should um, rethink our life and that we should receive God's grace. People have mocked me for that. Has anyone mocked you for your faith? Yeah, I'm sure people mock Noah when he talked to them about a God who sees and redeems. And I can't imagine being Noah's kids like, Dad, everyone thinks we're freaks. And Noah says, boys, it's time to go out and build today. It's time to go out and build. But they're going to make fun of us. And for 120 years, day after day, Noah strapped on his tool belt. He thanked God. He thanked Tubal Cain. And he hammered away and he built the ark. And he did everything that God said. And I don't know about you, but I am amazed by that. That he did everything that God said in spite of the mockery, in spite of uh, the years going by. Like, I wonder how many times he saw like a rain cloud and was like, oh, it's not ready yet. The mockery, the time, the cost, and yet he continues and persists and trusts what God says. And I don't know about you, I'm amazed by that. I mean, how many of you have faithfully done every, everything God said for 120 days? How many of you have faithfully done one thing God has said for 120 days? 120 years. Noah endures through the cost. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Noah's not a perfect guy. He's a knucklehead like everyone else. We'll see he has his up and downs. What this is saying is his life had a trajectory. What this is saying is for every time he got blackout drunk in the tent, he got back up and said, you know what? That's why the wrath of God is coming. And what a good God he is. That Though I'm bringing this stuff into the world, he wants to save me. He wants to redeem me. And so he would get up and he would build again. And I point out verse 22 because I think a lot of times, I think a lot of us try to have the faithfulness of Noah without the faith of Noah. I think a lot of times we get the order of verse 8 and verse 9 reversed where we try to do the right thing. We try to live as upright, righteous people. And we think, if I can just be righteous enough, then God will bless me. Not realizing that that's got the order of the Christian life reversed. That in Christ, he has already blessed us with every spiritual gift, with every heavenly gift, and the heavenly places. That you and I couldn't be any more blessed in Christ. And that when God commands us and gives us his ways for life, he's not saying, this is what you can do to earn my love. If you can stop getting drunk, if you can stop sleeping around, if you can stop doing these things, then I'll come through for you. That's not how the story of Noah and the ark works. It's while Noah's getting drunk that God gives him grace. It's while he's stumbling that God walks with him and takes his hand and says, this is life. You're going to sin. I'm going to be a great savior, and I'm going to walk with you in a newness of life. And when the commands of God come, it's not, Noah, I've given you all this grace. I need you to prove your seriousness to me, so show me you can do these commands. The commands of God are another act of grace, saying, I want you to survive the flood. I don't want you to have a leak 
when the flood comes. I don't want you to have the lions eating the lambs. That could get messy for everybody. The commands of God are always about leading Noah into life. It's never about earning God's love. But I think this is what we do even inside the church is we reverse the order. And we say, if I can just be faithful, then I'll get the blessing. If I can just be a righteous man, then God will have favor on me. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit might press into your soul that verse 8 comes before verse 9. That God loves you in spite of anything about you. And it is only when you realize the beauty and the power of his grace, it's only when you're surprised by the love of God that you begin to live a new life, that you begin to naturally desire new things. It's only when you believe that God has loved you like this that you're empowered to follow him on crazy things like building a boat in the middle of the desert. And so, here's what I know right now. I know there are some of you in here that you are just frustrated with God. You feel like you've held up your end of the bargain. You've been doing what he says. You said there's wicked people out there, and I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. Why are they blessed and my life is hard? And what I hope you can hear in this story is that God's not looking for you to clean yourself up before he'll love you. He loves you. Right where, you're, right where you're at right now. Not a future version of you, not a version that's not struggling as you are. He loves you in this space where you are today. And he has sent me to proclaim his love for you in Christ, that just as Noah received God's grace, so Jesus has sent his people to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That Jesus has died in our place for our sins. There's grace available to anyone who wants it. And the only people that don't experience the grace of God are the ones who have to hop over the cross of Jesus Christ and say, I've got this on my own. And I want to plead with you this morning not to do that. I want to plead with you. He's not asking you to clean yourself up. He's asking you to humbly open your hands and to receive a gift called grace. Right where you're at. And I know there might be some stuff in your life. I know you might have questions like, well, why isn't God moving in my marriage? Why isn't God moving in my family and in my work? And those are questions that the Lord can handle. He wants to talk to you about those things. But what I can promise you is the answer is not that you're not righteous enough. There can be a thousand answers to why God hasn't moved yet. The Lord only knows. But the invitation is to come. Walk with me by the hand like Noah, walk with me through life. I will make you a new kind of person, and we'll figure this stuff out along the way. So if you're frustrated with God, I I just hope that you might hear this morning that the Christian life isn't good guys and bad guys and be like the good guys. The Christian life is we're all bad guys, and Jesus is the only good guy. And through Jesus Christ, God has extended us what he deserves. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and, and let me also say this. If, if you are someone that is um, frustrated with God this morning and you're like, hey, I'm not, I'm not concerned about God's love for me. I'm concerned about God's goodness. I don't like what he said in his word. I don't like that he's telling me to build an ark. I don't like that he's telling me to seal the holes. What I would tell you is I hope you can see in this story that God's commands are always about leading you into life. And you might not understand it. I don't think Noah understood why he needed the floating wood versus the other wood. But God, 
He's a good father that wants good gifts for us. And his commands are never measure up to this so I can love you. His commands are always, I love you, and so I'm going to give you this gift to lead you into life. This is why if you read your Bible on repeat, God's people will praise him for his law. Say, thank you for your commands. This is so good. It's sweeter to my soul than honey on my lips. And my hope is, if you're frustrated with the word of God this morning, you might have questions that really need to be asked, and we invite you to ask those here. But my hope is you might see in the story of Noah that perhaps it's possible that the things he has commanded that seem backwards to you are in fact designed to lead you into life. Because that is what God's commands to Noah were designed to do. And Noah believed that. And so he built the ark. And he kept building the ark. And he kept preaching about the coming judgment. He kept preaching about righteousness. That Guys, I know I was with you at Hooters last week, but God came to me. You can trust in him. He'll give you a new life. And he kept preaching that again and again and again until God said, Noah, it's time. Get in the boat. And the flood waters began. And, and we'll finish the rest of the story last week, but here's, here's a spoiler. God carries them safely through the storm in the ark, just like he said it would. And, and the point is this. Um, Genesis is not just about what happened. It's about what always happens. What uh, Jesus said is Jesus said that the coming of the Son of Man, when he returns to the earth, will be like the days of Noah. What he says is, um, when he returns, like, I, I want you to think about this. There is coming a day where Jesus is going to tear open the sky and to return to restore goodness in this world. We're celebrating Christmas right now. We're celebrating the first coming of Christ. That is a great gift to us all. This is why we have even more reason than Noah to praise God for his grace. But the hope of the New Testament is not just that Christ has come once at Christmas, that he is coming again on the last day. And on the last day, he is going to tear a hole in the sky and he will bring heaven down to earth and he will wipe every ounce of injustice and evil off this planet once and for all never to bother us again and this is the hope of the new testament this is the book of revelation in a nutshell you ready we've spent 10 weeks on genesis i'll do revelation in a sentence the world's filled with evil but god's coming back and he'll fix it so hang on that's the hope of the New Testament. And just as in the days of Noah, God desires to show his grace in the midst of justice. And so in the fullness of time, he sends his son to live a perfect life, to die in our place for our sin, and to rise again, and to say, anyone who wants to be safe from the judgment that's coming, trust in me, and I'll take on your death, I'll take on your judgment, I'll trade you my life, and when I come back, you will enter into that forever, never to be touched by sorrow ever again. He says the day that that happens will be like the days of Noah, where they will be giving themselves in marriage, they will be eating and drinking. Basically what he means is they'll be doing normal everyday stuff. It'll come at a time you don't expect it. And, and I know you hear me saying this right now and you're thinking, oh, that's years down the road. This could happen before I finish this message. And so this is not the kind of thing that you say, I'll file this away, I'll get serious on it later. Maybe Noah's neighbor said that. 
like, oh, Noah's philosophy about God seems interesting to me. I'll finish my um, master's degree, and once I get that finished, then I'll go talk to Noah. Don't let it be too late for you. We know not the day nor hour. That's Jesus' whole point, saying it's going to be like the days of Noah. It's going to seem like an average, ordinary day until Christ rips open the heavens. The angels sing a lot louder than they did on Christmas. Glory to God in the highest. And the point of Noah in the flood is anybody can get in on this being a day of joy. And for those who have tasted of God's grace, we, like Noah, get to walk with God while we wait. We get to build our arcs. Like, look, I, historically, people will often compare the ark to the cross, and I get it because they're both wood, right? Uh, <laughs> and both are means of delivering them through judgment. What, what's interesting is the New Testament actually compares the ark to baptism. Now, I don't have time to do a whole sermon on baptism, but the big idea in baptism is we're declaring our allegiance to a better king. We're saying to our world and to the spiritual powers, you don't own me anymore. King Jesus owns me because he has loved me better than anyone could ever love me. And when we say that in baptism, what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that we are like Noah, building an ark to proclaim the grace and the forgiveness that is available in Christ Jesus. And so what I would say to you is if you've trusted this and you're amening the stuff about Jesus coming back, the question is, what, what has God said to you? What has God said that seems crazy like build your ark? How is your life testifying to the goodness and the superiority of King Jesus over every other force in the universe? In in when you find the answer to that, don't feel condemned. Don't feel like, oh, I should be living more this way. I should be feeling more that way. When you see the answer to what God is calling you to display his glory, because that's God's plan for Noah, you and me, and everyone who's ever lived, the answer is not so try harder to do that. The answer is look at the story. Look at verse 8 before you look at verse 9. See the grace of your crucified and risen king and allow that to empower you to get out your hammers to build your ark and to tell the world what your king is like and so we're going to end our service by doing that we're going to um, sing what christ has done we're going to sing the gospel to one another to the lord and to praise him for what he has done that we might walk out of here like noah um, amazed by the grace of God, fueled by the grace of God, to walk in the ways of God in such a way that we can proclaim our King's goodness and righteousness until the day he comes and shows the entire world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a just God, that we don't have to take vengeance into our own hands because we know that you and your perfect justice will deal with everything that's ever been done to us. And so I pray for anyone this morning that's suffering right now, that um, is under the boot of someone's sin, I pray that first and foremost you would encourage them, that you see them. Um, I pray that where appropriate, where we as the church can help, you would uh, move them to reach out to someone to ask for help so that we can be as your people, um, a people of justice and love and protection, just as you are for us. So I thank you for being a God of justice. And, and Lord, I thank you that you are not only a God of justice, but that your mercy triumphs over judgment. That even as you are just, that you've found a way to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. And so I pray for anyone in here this morning 
who hasn't yet trusted in Jesus. I pray that this might be the morning that your grace melts their heart, that they see, what am I hanging on to when grace is available to me? Um, I pray that you would make new Christians this morning. And for those of us who believe, I pray that you would melt our heart from the ways that we just harden through the everyday stuff of life, the ways that we stop listening to you and try living life in our own strength. I pray that the grace of verse 8 might melt our heart, that even as we have stumbled and done foolish stuff this week, you love us, you're for us. And I pray that that knowledge might empower us to look afresh to the ways that you are calling us to demonstrate your beauty in the world. Help us to do these things. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.